Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for all the gifts we have in you. We are grateful that as every year rolls around, we dedicate ourselves to consider the implications of a God who has acted to save his people at great cost to himself so that he, above all things, might be glorious and in the glory of God, we might find our salvation and our satisfaction. So we pray for clarity today of my words. Um, We pray for uh, open ears and open hearts. We pray that repentance, salvation, and conversion bear much fruit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So imagine you're on Jeopardy. It's the final round. And the question you need to answer in order to walk home a winner is the question, uh, what is the tallest mountain in the world? If you're like me, a consummate overthinker, uh, everything just got absolutely terrible. Because the obvious answer is Mount Everest. It's 29,000 feet off the surface of the earth. It is, in fact, the highest mountain. But though it is the highest, it is not the tallest. Far from the Himalayas in the Hawaiian Islands is Moana Kea. And it's nearly a mile taller than Everest. To put it in perspective of those who sit in the shadow of Lolo Peak, it's nearly three and a half times the height of Lolo Peak. And we don't often consider its immense size because, I'm sure as you've already gathered, because half of the mountain is below sea level. It rises up out of the sea and ascends to a height as profound as it is. And so from our perspective, it's big, but it's not the biggest. But from the true perspective of the ocean floor, there's nothing larger. And this little illustration shows us the danger of something the Bible holds up all the time, that if we view this world only through the the, uh, reality of what our human eyes can see, we often miss the reality that stands behind it. And because of that, we as humans could stand at the base of Moana Kea, and we could look up and we can see its peak, but we can't stand at the base of it and look up and see its summit. We can't climb it in full, and so we carry with us just a natural lack of perspective. And what Moana Kea reveals in terms of geology, this, yeah, that was a good illustration. They like that one. Um, What Moana Kea reveals in terms of geology, the birth of Jesus Christ, what Christians call the incarnation, reveals in terms of theology, It gives us eyes to see this Christmas season, a story that begins not merely on the shore of Bethlehem that ascends to the summit of the cross, but actually it reveals the vast distance that lay below the surface. It shows us, in a sense, two realities, but one great climb. Every year we celebrate Advent remembering the miracle declared to Joseph by an angel, saying of his wife Mary, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus Christ, God became man. You see, it would be an astounding thing for a sea creature who lay at the bottom of the ocean floor to ascend all the way up to the summit of Mauna Kea. And as astounding as it is, it's a hypothetical non-reality. Because the creatures who live on the ocean floor can't survive outside of that. The two worlds, though connected by the same slope, are literally worlds apart. It's impossible. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens. In other words, for God, the impossible became possible. God himself spanned this slope and this gap between two worlds by taking on flesh himself. 
As Christians, we worship the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, three persons in one God. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human form in the womb of Mary, and he entered into our world. He went from seafloor to ocean shore and then to the summit of the cross. And if you think about it, that the Son of God would die for our sins is, in fact, the greatest miracle. There is no miracle that could ever be more significant to your life than a God who took on flesh to die for your sins. And yet, it is not the greatest miracle. It's one thing for God to become man to die, but that assumes the first miracle, doesn't it? That God became man. J.I. Packer, the theologian, calls the incarnation the supreme miracle. But he goes on to say, it was yet only the first of a series of steps down from the joy and bliss of heaven to the pain and shame of Calvary. For a fish to come out of the depths of the shore of the Hawaiian ocean would be a remarkable thing, but in a sense, it would be ascending into paradise. It would go where we all want to go, where we want to get golden brown on the shores. He sees the sun and he sees the tropics and says, this is the world I've been waiting for. But Jesus did not ascend into paradise. He descended from it. He did not go up into what was good. He went down from what was perfect and entered into our world, into our sinful world, into our broken world, into our sinful uh, road crew people who don't know how to get ice off the roads despite the fact we live in Missoula. It's like snow is a foreign concept. If you're here and that's you, I love you. I'm glad you're here, but certainly we could have a better conversation at this point. In other words, Advent, the birth of Jesus, becomes all the more impressive when we not only understand the world he came into, but the world and the distance that he left behind. The early church pastor Athanasius said something like this. He said, the effects Jesus accomplished in the incarnation, that is when God became man in the womb of Mary, are such a kind and number that if anyone should wish to number them, then he would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. For the next four weeks, we are going to attempt to count some of those endless and infinite waves. And this is important because if you think in terms of that two-world reality, if Jesus merely lived below the surface of the sea, if he was just God, then he would be forever distant from us in our need. But also if Jesus just existed from shore to summit, he would be just like us and would therefore be not powerful enough or not significant enough, not worthy enough to actually help us in our needs. But the incarnation bridges the two worlds. It shows us the power of Jesus who left triune glory to become the God-man who saves us. He became, as is the title of this series, the gospel, the good news in our bones. And in short, what we're going to look at in these four weeks is specifically the humble power of Jesus. To put it another way, the humiliation of Jesus by focusing on the uniquely human experiences he had here in the flesh and to realize how wildly out of place that is that a God would do that. 
But in so doing, it shows us the heart, the compassion, the glory, and the wonder of the Christian God who is set forth to save us in Jesus. Today, as was already read for us, we're going to examine the stunning scandal of Jesus's temptation, that God not only became man, but that the God-man, Jesus Christ, was tempted to sin. And our main point today is this. It's simply that because Jesus never sinned, there's hope for those who have. Because Jesus never sinned, there's hope for those who have. And we're going to see this in two parts. First, we're going to examine the pain of Jesus's temptation, and then we're going to examine the purpose of Jesus's temptation. And our passage today is a mere few short verses in the Gospel of Mark, and it's Mark's aptitude for brevity, and which highlights the, the trauma and the tension of the incarnation. And he calls us to focus here uh, on immediate contrasts that surround two events in the early ministry of Jesus. Those events are his, uh, his baptism and his testing or his temptation in the desert. And this is our first point today. This contrast is the pain of Jesus's temptation. Now, as I read these few verses again, see if you can perhaps build that contrast up in your mind. Mark says this. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so what we're seeing here is a sort of divine postcard for what was certainly a homesick soul. Remember that the Son of God existed in all eternity with the Father in spirit and glory. So a big principle we need to remember as we proceed this is the Son of God did not begin at the incarnation. He existed eternally uh, in triune glory forever and ever. But when the Son of God took on flesh and was given the name, as we read in Matthew 1.21, the name Jesus, then he just got a name in his flesh. And so he existed forever in that world. He was always immediately present with the Trinity. But when he took on human form in Mary's womb, that eternal, imminent relationship became long distance. There was space in between that was never previously there. And so what we're seeing here is, is this thing that maybe you've had, an experience where you've walked into something, you've experienced something, you've smelled something, and that memory transports you back somewhere else, maybe to your hometown, to your mother's arms, to your grandpa's living room. I spoke with an American missionary once who was um, serving in uh, a remote place, and uh, one time his friends from home sent him a bag of uh, coffee, good coffee. And uh, there is such a thing as good and bad coffee, and it does you well to know the difference. Um, but anyway, he, he received this bag of coffee, and he said when he brewed it, it immediately transported him home. He was sitting in his hometown coffee shop. He could feel the weather of his hometown in the cup. He said it even brought back to him the experience of those pretentious baristas, and he loved it still. <laughs> and that is, in a sense, what's happening here. Because Jesus, at this point, has lived in a foreign land, away from heaven's glory, for nearly 30 years. But in this moment, he looked up, and he smelled the aroma of the brew. The heavens tore open, and he was transported back in a powerful way 
When he came up out of the water, the world became alive again in the sense he had known the world for all eternity. The whole band was back together. The spirit descended like a dove. The father spoke an audible word, which was probably like the sound of a waterfall. You know the sounds that you don't only just hear, but you feel deep in your soul. As he said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Moreover, the context surrounding this, uh, we see that Jesus is with his earthly cousin, John. He's surrounded by his early disciples. He is wet and washed, refreshed in the dry desert air. Together with the nearness of the spirit, the words of the father, gazing into heaven, it was as some might say, perfect in schlag. And for many of us, when we become Christian, this is the experience we expect. All beauty, all ease, all glory. Maybe when you come out of the waters of baptism, Lord willing, we'll have some here in a few weeks, you expect a similar change of reality. You expect immediate intimacy, unending affirmation, audible confirmation, all of your sins finally removed from you by the water of your conversion. You've got the chorus of family and friends applauding you, but it's not long that you realize you still live in this world. Your deadlines don't care about your baptism. Your health does not abide by your profession of faith in the resurrection of the dead. The riches you have in Christ seem to not matter to the bills that show up endlessly. And it leaves us wondering at that point if it makes any difference at all. Does my conversion, does my salvation change anything? But it's here where Mark's narrative of Jesus our Lord throws a cold bucket of water onto those who would imagine life to exist only in that way. Notice the contrast now in verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We have lots of jarring experiences in our life. Every morning, for humanity, it is jarring. Another day has come, and none of you gave it permission. More tasks have been thrust upon you, and you didn't ask for it. We are locked in what seems, especially this time of year in Montana, a battle for your own soul that wages war in the comfort of your bed and the cold floor of your bathroom. It is a jarring experience that reminds us that something is amiss. Something isn't as it should be. And Jesus' experience here for any ordinary human would have been jarring in the extreme. Did you notice the contrast? He went out of the water to into the wilderness It goes from the tenderness of a dove to the threat of wild animals. It goes from relational imminence to immediate loneliness. The words of the Father's affirmation are quickly surpassed by the presence of Satan's temptation. While the heavens became silent, Satan did not. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical story at all, you know that Satan knows a thing or two about tempting important people in wild places. We've seen some remarkable temptations in scripture, but none of them are as jarring as this. Adam, for instance, was tempted in the garden, but mind you, he was in the immediate presence of God in a beautiful garden with a helper suitable for him. Job was, or did I say Adam was tempted by God? 
Adam was tempted by the serpent. Um, and then we see Job was also tempted and provoked by the devil, but God laid down these ground rules. He, he restricted, he governed even Satan's temptations there. But Jesus had none of those benefits. Here was Satan, unmetered, uninhibited, undistracted, where he set his gaze fully and exclusively on Jesus with all of his deceptive and dangerous might. Like if you've read or watched Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, that eye of Sauron in all of its piercing weight fell exclusively on Jesus. You see, temptation is common to all of us. The Bible makes that clear. But let's remember, Jesus was not always one of us. He was not always human. He existed in triune bliss. Uh, Lord willing, later on this fall, we're going to begin a series in Song of Solomon. Stay tuned. Uh, And uh, there's a constant reprieve in that book where they say, do not awaken love until it pleases. And the reason why they say that is is both this metaphorical uh, groom and bride are saying to younger people, be cautious about the, uh, the excitement of physical intimacy because once it is aroused, it is hard to unring that bell. It is powerful, it is beautiful, and it has a place. Well, Jesus, to stretch that metaphor into glory, has only lived in the awakening of love in the Trinity. You see, sin at its heart is ultimately tempting us with what? The promise of joy, the promise of peace, the promise of pleasure, the promise of intimacy. And what is heaven but the full, perfect end of those things in all of their beauty, in all of their fullness, but without the hidden barb of sin, without the falsities of counterfeits. You see, on earth, there are many ways we can seek worldly pleasure, peace, and joy, but because of sin, many of these are dangerous. Proverbs tells us that the sweetness of sin is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And so what Jesus knew in perfect joy in heaven now has added a new reality in his humanity. In heaven, he never had to say no to any joy. It was always good in perfect triune glory, but now Jesus had to say no to getting the same joy from means that were not God himself. He had the pain of choice. For the first time, he had to examine counterfeit joys and say no to them. At its core, all of our temptation is promising things that only exist in God, and no one would have known the joys of God besides God himself. And therefore, no one would have been tempted to enjoy the fruits of pleasure, the pleasures of God, more than the God who became a man. Think of it this way. Japanese Wagyu A5 beef is generally considered the greatest steak in the world. If you're interested, you could travel to Japan. It's around $100 an ounce to get it. That sounds delicious to me. But I'm only tempted so far to do that. I'm hardly tempted to fly to Japan and to spend that money for a $200, two-ounce steak. I'd much rather settle for a cheaper steak, even though that sounds delicious. Now, why would I do that? Well, it's because I've never actually tasted it. The idea of it sounds really good. But because I've never had it, eh, I'll settle for something less. 
And in this regard, all Jesus did for all eternity was feast upon the wonderful beauty and glory of the tastiest beef of heaven's intimacy in the Trinity. And now, if anybody would be tempted to shortcut the discount bin by any means possible to get back to that taste, would it not be Jesus who knew that endlessly and ultimately? And he entered into this willingly. He left the kitchen of glory and went to the dollar store and lived there. Why? Why would he come into a place of such potential strain? Why would he give up the source only to be tempted by the scent? Because we needed a new man. And this is the second point this morning. Having seen the pain of Jesus' temptation, the unique reality it presents, now we see the purpose of Jesus' temptation. You see, as Adam was tempted as our head in the garden, he failed. He caved to Satan's temptations, though the full array of God's glory and presence pressed in around him. And so Jesus, here in this text, he has come in a way to start the Bible over again. A new man in a new temptation. Thomas Aquinas commented on the timing of this event in the scope of God's history. He said that if God had become man right after Adam and Eve sinned, then we would perhaps in our pride not be humbled enough. We wouldn't really know that extent of what was lost because we could still maybe taste the Wagyu steak we had the night before. We wouldn't know of the treasure lost or of the pain that we gained, but he says this. He says, on the other hand, it would not do to have the incarnation delayed, lest human longing turn to hopelessness and despairing disappointment. Therefore, at exactly the right time, in the fullness of time, as St. Paul says, God became man. A new man who would be a new head, not in the garden of glory, but in the desert of sin. One who would come to redeem those who had been enslaved to sin forever. We would hardly give up our bedtime Netflix routine or our morning routine when we drink our coffee. That's one of the things when working with pre-marriage, the hardest thing of two sinners getting together is whose schedule wins. Jesus gave up far more than a schedule to come and to be with us. He did it so that he would submit not only to the absence of the things that were themselves glorious, but he did and endured the temptation so that he might regain those who were taken captive by sin. Most of us can probably understand the purpose of Jesus' death. We sing about it all the time. We talk about it. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to earth to die for our sins. That is true. That's good. But why, think about it this way, why does Jesus need to be tempted? Why does he need to be tempted? In other words, if Jesus merely needed to die as a sinless substitute for humanity because humanity sinned, then what would have stopped Jesus from dying in the womb of Mary? Death would still be bitter. It'd still be painful. He would still be human. And the experience of pain and trauma on both parties would perhaps be less. Mary would not have to gain 30 more years of knowledge and intimacy with her son. Jesus would not have to endure the pain of stubbed toes. And this desert scene would have never had to be a reality. Or maybe when Herod issued his murderous threats to all the infants, maybe he could have just been swept up in that and even put to death by an evil person 
Isn't that, after all, what Peter says happens at Pente- in his sermon at Pentecost, that, you, that wicked men put Jesus to death at the hand of God? Isn't that the same thing? Why here? Why does it have to endure to this end? Well, Jesus had to endure, and he had to be tested, because we needed more than a substitute for Adam's disobedience. We needed a substitute for Adam's obedience. We needed someone who not only was free from sin, but someone who obeyed perfectly. In other words, we didn't need someone who was just absent of sin. We needed someone who was full of righteousness. And this is why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.10. He says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, here's why it's really important to have a biblical understanding of the incarnation or or Christology is what it's called. Because if you're like me, when you hear that Jesus took on flesh to be made perfect through suffering, you maybe have an idea that's a little less than what the Bible is presenting. For instance, for me, I often think of being made perfect through suffering, kind of like this trial by fire where like burning off the dross, this montage of some sports ball movie shows up and there's this guy submitting himself to the grueling uh, training camp and he's like sweating the suffering out of him. Maybe if you've ever, you know, gone for a run the night after you had a big plate of nachos, you suffer the nachos out of you that morning. But Jesus' suffering that the author of Hebrews is talking about was not on account of sin. Jesus did not need the suffering. He did not need the nachos. He did not need the weakness to be suffered out of him. Jesus was sinless. He had no sin nature. Just like Adam, the first head. Adam was created in the garden without a sin nature, but when he sinned as the representative head of all humanity, everyone born of man, everyone born of Adam, had became tainted with the consequences of sin. So what Paul says in Romans 5.12, where he says this, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, all sinned. That's what theologians call the doctrine of original sin or of depravity. And that's what I could say to any of you today. I know many of you. I don't know some of you. But I could say to any of you and to all of you, you need to be saved. You have a problem that cannot be fixed by family reunions or Christmas movies or workout plans. You have a problem that must be fixed by the removal of your sin. Each of us are born sinful. That doesn't mean we're born totally evil and are incapable of good, but each of us are born totally condemned in our sin. But Jesus, as the new Adam, was not born of Adam. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. She was born of Mary, but she was also born of the Spirit. And so Jesus, in this way, was not like us because he was not just man. He was God. Having a divine father, he did not take into himself the natural sinfulness of those who do have an earthly father. You and me and our kids and our grandkids, they are born of two uh, not two men. I need to clarify that today. Two men in the general sense, but of two humans. A mom and a dad. And in that union, all of the wonderful benefits of the genetics of sin go on. But Jesus was born not of that union, but of the union he represents in himself of God and man. 
And so Jesus was not like us in that he wasn't merely man, though he was fully man, but he was like us in that he had all of the tools at his possession to sin in the same way you do. Paul says, do not present your members as instruments of righteousness. He's talking about your hands, your fingers. Jesus had all those. He could have pressed the button your two-year-old presses. He could have tripped his sister. He had all of those things. But this is why the author of Hebrews says this. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Jesus, fully God and fully man, was without sin and yet tempted. Are we clear? We good so far? Because I'm about to maybe mess up all of that clarity. Okay, so I just want to make sure you feel good right now so you have a baseline to assess what's about to happen. All right? So, even though Jesus was tempted, Jesus could not sin. Even though Jesus was tempted, Jesus could not sin. And here's why. For Jesus to sin would have been for Jesus to violate his very person. It would have been for Jesus, the eternal son of God, to no longer be the eternal son of God. And see, that's where it's important to understand that Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. It is the eternal son of God who took on flesh, and therefore the incarnation didn't change Jesus's desires. It didn't change his will. It didn't change his passion. It didn't change his personality. It merely added a human nature to the already existent divine nature. So to use a really crude analogy, think of the natures as gloves and the person as your hand. And so in eternal glory, the person, which is the hand that moves, right? This gloves don't move. Gloves lay there. But what moves the glove is the passions, the will, the desire of the person. And so in eternal glory, the person of the Son of God had a divine nature. So whatever he interacted with, he acted with exclusively according to the divine nature. He had the glove of the divine. But when Jesus took on flesh, he added another glove over that. That is his human nature. And so now, whenever the hand did anything, whenever the person of Jesus, which had all the same desires, all the same will, all the same personality, whenever it acted on those things, it did so not merely in an accord with the divine nature, but also with this added nature of the flesh. And because of that, this is why this is important, because it shows us that for the person of Jesus to sin is for the purpose of person of Jesus to self-combust. <laughs> He can't sin. Just as light can't be dark and wet can't be dry, God cannot be sinful. He can't do that. The person is still the same. And James says this in James 1.13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So notice the phrasing there. He says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Let's think of it this way. Like we all do to our original sin have a magnetism in us to the magnet of sin. You know, you've done that as kids. You try to hold them apart and inevitably you find the point where they just clack together. Jesus didn't have that same magnetic charge. He wasn't, he can't be tempted by evil for he doesn't have evil inside of him. God cannot be God and be evil. 
And in the impossible hypothetical situation where he did become evil, then he would no longer be God. And that's an impossibility. So what happened in the incarnation? What is actually going on here? And why is it worthy of any sort of honor or consideration? Well, if you read the narratives of Luke and Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation, you'll notice that he was tempted. But he wasn't tempted with evil. He was tempted by food, which itself is not sinful. He's tempted by safety, which itself is not sinful. And he's tempted by worship, which itself is not sinful. And so to put it another way, Jesus wasn't tempted as we often are by our former experiences of sin. For instance, take somebody who wrestles with lustful thoughts or pornography. When we are tempted, we have images and experiences in our body that are in themselves sinful. Jesus didn't have that database. He didn't have that internal DVR. He was free from that. He didn't suffer because of these experiences, and he couldn't pull from those experiences. Therefore, evil in that regard was not tempting to him. So what was his temptation like, and how can it be helpful to us and encouraging to us who aren't perfect and who aren't God and who do have the ability to sin? Well, there's three things here that I want to touch on in closing that give us greater awareness of our sin and greater beauty of the one who helps us with it. And so first, in understanding Jesus' temptation, we need to see Jesus' resistance in the flesh. Jesus' resistance in the flesh, that is how Jesus resisted as human. Even though he did not have that bank of images, he did have a body. He was, as Colossians and Hebrews tells us, like we are made in the image of God. And that means that we are rational, we have desires and wants. He is the image of God, which means that all of the passions and desires for community and, and satisfaction and joy and tastiness that we have, Jesus himself had in his own body. Even if Jesus was never a glutton, he did have a tongue that could taste the sweetness of honey. He did have dopamine receptors in his brain that said, honey, good, eat more. All those things were there. Even though Jesus never cursed, he was fully able to stub his toe. He had pain receptors that worked just as much as you. He had plans that would get foiled just as much as yours. And even though Jesus wasn't tempted by the evil within him, what we see in this text is he was spared not by the evil outside of him. Remember here, Satan himself, in some sort of physical presentation, presented himself to him and laid all of his weight to tempt Jesus in the flesh. And how humbling is this? God cannot be tempted in the flesh because God is not in the flesh. If Jesus would have remained the eternal son of God in all heaven, this scene would have been the most boring movie you've ever watched. It's like any Superman film. It's like, I wonder how this one's going to end, okay? You know, like draw a plot. Um, and, and so if he was always there, this never would have happened. Which meant when Jesus willingly took on flesh, when he willingly became a man, he was now tempted by things which up until that point were utterly foreign to him the freedom to do what he wanted to do had a bulky glove that made it awkward, difficult, and laborious to do what was always and only easy and good. To use another overly simplistic metaphor, I watched a movie once where there was a man who was a ghost for a long time and he like regained his body and uh, 
anytime he went to go leave a room, he would walk into the door. Because he was so used to being just spirit that he would never open doors. You know, he'd do the funny ghost walk through walls thing. He'd go try to leave, and he'd just slam himself into the door. (laughs) Why? Because he was so used to the ease of life. And now there's this physical reality. We hate those things. That's why they're funny. But Jesus willingly did it for us. For Jesus, obedience in eternity was always easy. That song we sing on that day when free from sinning, that was Jesus' only reality. But now, obedience was hard. Try to send a text when you're wearing gloves. Watch how sinful our hearts become real quick. (laughs) What Jesus did every day in the flesh was infinitely more difficult than that. It was resisted in real ways, all of his obedience by the physical realities of humanity. Jesus knows what it's like to make faithful efforts to obey God. And he did it. But secondly, we see not only Jesus' resistance in the flesh, but we actually see Jesus' resistance of the divine. And so this is, we, we looked at his human nature, and now we're looking at that divine nature. And there's a sense where he resisted that being the only nature in which he lived. As I studied for this sermon, this is actually what stirred in me the greatest sense of awe. And so if I do a really bad job explaining this hypothetical or hypostatic union, you could at least know more about my mind and judge me based off that. But Matthew and Mark tell us that the first temptation Satan gives Jesus is to turn stones into bread. And so uh, theologians say that the devil came and prayed off of uh, this, this word they call hangriness. Uh, and uh, thanks, Shelly. <laughs> That's not actually the word. Um, but after 40 days of fasting, after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry because he fasted for 40 days. Um, and, uh, but this 40 days of fasting in the desert was not merely about Jesus. It was also about Jesus as the new Adam, as the new head of humanity, the new head of Israel. If you're familiar with the Bible, Adam was tempted in the desert or in the garden with food and he failed. Israel as this new corporate whole, this attempt to maybe regain what was lost in the garden. They were tempted for 40 years uh, in the wilderness and they failed. And so now if we're watching, we get that gut feeling where we're like, is it happening again? Man alone, man hungry, man being tempted. We've read the story before and it goes poorly. Who would pass the test? And so Satan, just like with the apple in the garden, Uh, Satan, just like the meat pots of Egypt in the Exodus, approaches Jesus according to the merely human desire of hunger. Why? Because he was hungry, because he was human. Now, in his divine nature, Jesus was not hungry. Gods don't need food. We see it all the time in the Old Testament. As pagans go and offer food sacrifices to their God, they laugh at them. Like, your God needs food? That's really? You got to give him a PBJ at midday in order for him to do his God things? But here, uh, Satan was a good theologian. He knew that he could go and he could tempt Jesus in his human nature with food and that Jesus in all reality could merely act in accord with his divine nature. He could kind of like take off the glove of the flesh, which isn't in itself sinful, and he could just say like, not hungry. He could do that. And that's what he's trying to coax him into. He's like, take off the glove, man. He's like, look at this food. Isn't this hard? Aren't you supposed to have followers? Aren't you supposed to be king of the world? 
It's hard out here, isn't it? This is uncomfortable, isn't it? Your tummy's a little rumbly. Don't you have the ability to do something about it? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're still that person, right? You're the son of God. You created the cosmos. Can't you turn these rocks into bread? Why suffer like this? Why not a little snack? You see, Jesus in that moment could have chosen to suspend his humanity, to remove that glove, and to act only in relation to his divine nature. And it would not have caused any consequence in the person of Jesus. It would not have torn asunder God himself. In fact, Jesus would have been entirely unaffected by it. He freely took on flesh. Could he not also freely take off his flesh? But he did this. If he did this, if he chose to sub out, so to speak, to resist the temptation of the devil by acting only in accord with his divine nature, it would have been no good for us. We didn't need a God who obeyed. We needed a man to obey. Jesus chose to obey, to endure, and to suffer temptation in his humanity because it was humanity, not God, who had the problem of sin. Sin is not God's problem. It's ours. God does not need to vindicate himself from sin. We do. Jesus was tempted and Jesus endured because every waking moment of his discomfort, of every earthly morning, of every gap of food, of every parched mouth with thirst, at every step, he had us on his mind as our brother. He chose not to vindicate himself. He chose not to take the easy way out. And he could have chosen to say no to it all and to flee that temptation, to withdraw to the recesses of heaven's glory where he is never accosted again. All of the comforts we want in this world, Jesus could have had infinitely and endlessly in a moment. But he chose to suffer the weight of that humanity, not because he was weak, but because we were. He chose to do it, not because he loved the world, but because he loved those who he made in his image in the world. Because he loved us. This is what leads Paul to say this in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross the thing which should shock us most about Jesus is not that he never sinned like we did but that he chose to obey like we didn't on the cross Jesus suffered substitutionally for your sins but in his life, Jesus suffered substitutionally for your obedience. And this weight never left. At the end of the day, you clock out and you go home. And you live for yourself. Jesus never had that option. He did in his own desires. But if he desired to glorify God through the salvation of the lost, he stayed on the clock every waking moment. Satan left him after this scene, but the responsibility to obey as a human never did. And this is our last point. This is Jesus' resistance to the end. 
Paul just said that the obedience, the humility, the suffering of Jesus took him to the end of the cross. And it's only there where Jesus' temptation ultimately ended. You see, Jesus might not know what it's like to drink too much, but Jesus is the only one who knows what it's like to feel tempted and tempted to the end. He's the only one who knows what it's like to feel tempted in full. In fact, it's one thing for us to look at this and kind of boast and say, you know what? I have never committed adultery. I have never murdered. But you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't commit adultery. He didn't murder. He also never ate one too many Doritos. He was never gluttonous. He never hated someone in his heart. Our view of sin is far too small. And Jesus endured not only the quality of sin, but the quantity of it. Every waking moment, he chose to put down the ice cream when it became an idol. He chose to turn off the TV when it captivated his passions too much. But more than that, he resisted endlessly the depth of temptation. C.S. Lewis points out a false idea that we might have today. They're like, yeah, well, Jesus never sinned. He's Jesus. He's a good guy. Good guys don't want bad things. That's hardly impressive. But he goes on to point out that those who are truly good are the only ones who actually know the weight of temptation. He goes to say that you might be able to go a week or a day, maybe in six weeks, resisting some sort of vice or whatever. He says, but try to go six months. And what you'll find is you're probably worse than you thought at the outset. He goes on to say this. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Don't we know that? Come February and our New Year's resolutions are labeled 2025. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of wind by trying to walk against it, not by laying down. A man who gives into temptation after five min minutes simply does not know what it would have been, been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulses inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. So the author of Hebrews is right that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, but that also leaves more on the table, doesn't it? It's true that Jesus was also tempted more than any of us. If we look at the nature of the incarnation and of Jesus' willing, intentional, and continual efforts for obedience in our place, we will find our temptations too small a comparison to say, no, 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 he didn't know this. He never knew the allure of Twitter or Instagram. He never had soft-serve ice cream. He never lived in a sexualized world. He obeyed perfectly, endlessly, and infinitely, and felt every weight of it. He felt every burden of humanity in his flesh, and in his heart, and in his mind, and he endured as the God-man. He endured and entered into that, not as the God to whom obedience is due, but as the God who would humble himself and obey for me and for you. He did it for the glory of the Father and for the good of us. Everything he did consciously on his mind, this weight. And how did he do it? Well, if you notice in the text, by the help of the Spirit. Let's not forget that it's the Spirit who sent him there, alone and among the wild animals. But was it not also the Spirit who cared for him there? Moreover, even though the Father's voice is absent, the Father's messengers were not. 
the angels served Jesus. Let that be a reminder to us too that even in the midst of our temptation, when we feel alone, we are never alone. Now you might say, I sure felt alone last night. Where are my angels serving me? Where's my spirit visually or physically ushering me somewhere? It seems the dove is gone and the desert's near. The voice is silent and the tempter is loud. But notice the better hope the author of Hebrews holds out for us in Jesus. Hope of a greater helper. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, because of all that Jesus endured, because he endured things that no God should ever endure, because he endured and he endured to the end, because he endured when and where you never could, we are ministered to by someone greater than an angel in the spirit. We are ministered to by our brother, our savior, Jesus in the flesh, the one who has made propitiation for our sins, the one who resisted and passed the test you never could. So what do we do with this? Well, first, we need to realize we need him more than we know. We need Jesus not only because we sinned, we need Jesus because we also did not obey. You need a new man. It doesn't come from a new year, a new job, or a new bonus. It comes through the gift of Jesus Christ. And for those who feel the constant weight of the slope when you look at it, come to Christ who has descended for us. Come to Jesus Repent of your sins. And then secondly, having done that, we see, seeing what lay below the surface and what rise above, we see he is worthy of more worship than we could ever imagine. We can now stand at the foot of the cross and see the slope goes much further down than Calvary's hill. We see how much he gave up. We see how much we endured. And we know that he did it so that we might find our pleasure and our peace in him. What sin tempts us with, worship reminds us of. It restores us to God. The same hope that Jesus himself hoped in the flesh is our hope, and through worship we displace the affections of the world. So let us conclude today and begin this Advent season by worshiping God in song and in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you do um, all that you have promised to do, that you warn us of the dangers of sin by promoting in us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That when we are weak and tempted, we are reminded of the one who is weak and tempted, but the one who is victorious in our place. May we then realize that the pleasures of heaven restored to us in Jesus are of far greater power than all the whispers and lies of Satan. May we worship our way to the gate of glory by seeing Jesus, who did what he never had to do to save people who could never do enough. We pray this in your name.